welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board gaming. I'm here with my great friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well, thanks. How are you? Great. Mark informed me that during the podcast, I have all these great hand gestures and that, you know, you don't guys understand what I'm actually saying. So like air quote everything where I say, I think Ultimate Werewolf is a bad game. I put in air quotes and you guys don't see it. So, you know, it's, it's you know, it, it leads to, you know, you know, wrong impressions, Mark. I guess that just doesn't work out. I am shocked that all the listeners think that you enjoy Hansa Teutonica and Tigers and Euphrates and all these other things when they don't get to see you rolling your eyes. Exactly. Your so, tone of voice is so calm and melodious that we take you at face value even when we shouldn't. Maybe I'm going to put like a timestamp. You know, Walker rolls his eyes here. Mike puts air quotes here. Mark punches you know Walker need. here. You know what we need? We need a Greek chorus. We need somebody to stand in the corner. Ah, yes, of course. Kind of like for people with visual impairments who narrate television shows. But here we would need it for the podcast because we're bad at broadcasting. But they say it's like opera singing. like they. It's like a little... Well, it would be karaoke style. Exactly. They would set up Steel Team Flicks and they would do the karaoke and it would be sung. Fantastic. Maybe less like a Greek chorus. More All right, like moving on. Chorus. A podcast about board games. We talk about uh, the games we played this week. We're going to talk about board game news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game this week, which you saw from the title, which is going to be Black Angel, the new game that's getting great buzz from Pearl Games. From Pearl Games. Mark, what did you play this week? This week I played Hellboy the Board Game. I always like to go back to those games that we review positively, come to get back to them as soon as possible. I've been wanting to play Hellboy for a while because after we reviewed the retail version, I went out and traded for the Kickstarter version, which has a lot more stuff, and we thought that the retail version was complete in and of itself, but I really like some of the graphical improvements. They have these adorable little plastic busts instead of plastic discs to represent people in the threat order, etc. And several of the people that we played Hellboy with in the lead-up to the review, we're very, very keen to play it again. And so, a good time was had by all. This time, we fought against the giant Conqueror Worm, which is truly an impressive miniature. I'm actually going to repurpose it for another tabletop miniatures game that needs a giant worm uh, opponent. And uh, I tried one of the new characters. Some of our uh, people of our acquaintance, one of the local Louis, who likes to set everything on fire, 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 all the time, watch the world burn. Sure enough, got to set everything on fire. And it was a great time. And Hellboy remains, I think, one of the tightest, if not the tightest, of its genre, namely the co-op, crawly, adventure thing. And it has a minimal, a minimal amount of wasted actions, has a great set of rule systems, and a, just enough flavor to, to keep you going. And I really appreciate it. The only thing that I haven't tried yet that I really now want to in the Hellboy board game is the make-your-own-scenario system, because we commented on this in the review. It has this lovely bit where in the first part of the game you're accumulating clues, but you don't know why. They're cashed in later on once the big reveal happens. And so there's a certain amount of limited replayability. You don't get that same sense of adventure. I'd be happy to replay certain scenarios, but you don't get that same sense of discovery. But in the create-your-own-scenario system, I don't know if it would be as tight in terms of presenting the, the sort of first act leading to the second act. So I'm looking forward to giving that a try in the future, but suffice to say that Hellboy made it to the table again. Everyone was very, very glad to see it, and we had a great time. I think that's a good thing to keep a close eye on the the local scene, like the online scene, to see if people are doing like their own made scenarios. I think that is a, a genre where people would actually do that because it leads into that. Like, it's very easy to you know, make up a scenario, say, you know, when they find this clue, read this paragraph. I think it, I think it might be something that takes off. It's true, but it wouldn't, it would have to not be done in the traditional way. In the traditional way, you just post the materials online and then people print them out. The problem here is that you wouldn't be able to do that because in the process of printing out the cards, you would then get spoiled for everything that happened in the scenario. It would have to be with, you know, spoiler tags and maybe a thread on board game, things like that. But you're absolutely right. It could be done. Mark and I got to play a robot pew pew shoot laser game today it was fantastic it was called mech command rts it is a great little game you have your robots you can you put whatever arms on you want depending on what weapons you've got they all have these little switches on the side and it turns on lights and they're uh they're a light color so it's a game that you wouldn't be able to paint the miniatures for because some light wouldn't show up i think I don't think it would be as clear as it is now. So because this light beam shines across the table and it's easy to tell whether or not you can see the other mech or not. And you need this because it's a real time game. You say, you know, blue shooting green 
and you don't have to worry about when you're getting shot at. You know, you should worry because you, your neck is, mech is exploding, but you don't need to track anything. You just keep your head down and you, and you say, Oh, I guess he could see me. I'm going to start moving over towards this building because maybe I'll get out of line of sight type thing. Or you jump on a building or you do something else. And I think it's a great little game. It might, you know, wear itself thin, but as Mark said, there's m multiple scenarios, which makes it makes it a little bit more complicated and maybe will, you know, keep you engaged longer. But overall, I think they kept it just simple enough and just enough rules because in a real time game, you do need to set some boundaries or else it just becomes a free for all, you know, of craziness. And, the, and they said, I think they said it just enough that, you know, you don't have to rules layer it too bad and keeps it fun. I agree. There are a lot of balancing acts that go into games like this, especially once you add on the real-time element. We only played the first scenario, which is very much a training scenario. The game only really kicks into high gear once you have support units. So you're controlling a mech and a couple, well, they look like trucks, but the game tells you that they're effectively an infantry unit. And at that point, you really have to start balancing, going after victory conditions and all that combat and all those other things. The, the opening scenario is more or less a crapshoot and is pretty random and, and not terribly satisfying. But even there, I was reminded about how good the cover system is. Namely, there's no cover system. It's just a function of where the buildings are located and how the movement uh, systems work. It, it gets a lot right. And I really appreciate some of the innovations they've done. I don't really know... There's a lot of spielkes about the license. It used to be an Armored Core thing, but setting all that aside, I wish that it was a little less beholden to the campaign structure and gave you a little bit more flexibility with respect to getting starting loadouts and things like that. But I don't know. It's a pick-your-poison type of situation. Either you have a campaign system and burden it with that, or you have a system whereby first-time players are told, here's 50 bucks, go spend some stuff and customize things, even though you've never played. So I'm not sure which of those two I'd prefer at the end of the day. And I, like you, I'm pretty much done with the training scenario. The, the victory conditions are not inspired, and I really do prefer the ones with support units, so I'm looking forward to showing you those. We played it two-player. I was... It was okay two-player. I actually prefer it four-player. The... That's one of my overall misgivings about Mech Command, and in fact, games in general. Even as my game collection continues to spiral out of control in terms of sheer number, I'm always suspicious of games that are very, very inflexible with player count. I was glad to see that Mech Command worked at a two-player level, but I do think that it is best at four. And so at that point, you have a scenario-based, campaign-driven four-player game, and that's a lot of restrictions on how to get it to the table. But... I do really enjoy how it is. It's visually very impressive, and the real-time elements are done really well, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. So I, was, I too, was very pleased to play Mech Command RTS. Played another game of modern art. This is sort of the uh, renaissance of my Knizia modern art appreciation. This is with, again, the beautiful new Simon edition that they put out a couple of years ago, which has real-world artists that are weird but still visually appealing. It's got a lovely little wooden gavel. You get to feel like a little douchebag and hit the table with, with the gavel when the auction's done. And it's very much a game about controlling the economy of the table. Both this and QE, QE a more recent release, are very much about reading the economy and figuring out how, how much each person is spending. Now, modern art has the additional wrinkle, though, and is much more subtle and complex by virtue of the fact that the money is going to other players. In QE, all the money just goes out the system. Well, the money. It's all made up. You can say whatever amount you want in QE. But in modern art, it's very much about knowing, well, this person's been overspending, so I can overspend to them. I can overbid on something they're selling because giving them extra money is not going to hurt me at the end of the day because I know that they're not really a threat because they've been irresponsible with their cash. That part is really cool. Now, the, the one problem with modern art, I haven't seen this happen, but I've seen it come close. It is possible through irresponsible bidding for someone to just throw the game to other people, right? If it's the case that through a couple of high-stakes auctions, someone makes a fundamental miscalculation, and overbids drastically, well, then they're just going to shovel a whole bunch of cash to another player, and that could lead to unfortunate situations. And even people who rave about modern art, and modern art is... I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about modern art. I appreciate it more and more, but I'm not I'm not sure whether it's among the top tier of Knizia auction games. And keep in mind, the top tier of Knizia auction games consists of at least five different brilliant auction games. <laughs> And even people who adore it say that this is a potential problem. The, the economy of modern art occasionally suffers from a bit of fragility. But honestly, it's still uh, a joy to play and very quick and engaging. And just every auction is super consequential, which is not something you can always say about other auction games. So I very much enjoyed modern art, and I will probably be playing it at, uh, more as time goes on to make up for the many, many years where I just didn't. And that was Modern Art by Reiner Knizia. I think that guy's got a future. I think so. I've heard good things about him. 
hopefully he does well. We also got to play Xenoshift. The more and more I play Xenoshift, the less and less players I want to play it with. Hmm. It's like, first it was like, oh, it's fine with four, it's fine with three. Now I'm only going to play it either two player or solo. It just shines more that way, you know, because when it's two player, while they're doing the turn, you can do a little bit of the handy paperwork, get the next deck ready or whatever, and then it's your turn and you go. Otherwise, I think it just, it just slows down. But, and I really, it's still enjoyable. Like the different combinations you get with the troops and the weapons, because they're always so different and the way they can combo up and make a totally unique game. Like we played today. It's like there were combos there we we never seen before and, and, it kept it interesting. I think it's still a great deck building game. I was immediately reminded of all the reasons why Edge of Darkness fails as a deck builder as far as we're concerned. It fails to leverage some of the unique elements that deck builders can typically take for granted, precisely like exerting those cool card combos and getting these interesting things that happen in your deck. In turn two and three of Xenoshift, we already had interesting things happen and leveraging interesting aspects of our own powers and our own cards. There were a couple of key instances, and we talked about this in the review, where you had to buy a card for me because I had, a, I had a slow round. I had to use abilities to help you out. And so it is unfortunate that, as you say, with three and four players, it's much, much, much too long. And even with two players, you're talking about a substantial time investment as far as deck builders are concerned. But I think it's worth it at the end of the day, because as co- far as co-op deck builders go, Xenoshift is far more interactive than some other co-op deck builders, whereby you're both just whittling down the energy of something else. But in Xenoshift, you get to buy cards and use cards for other people and, and special abilities and so forth. And the cards are cool and do fun things, which, again, was one of our primary knocks about Edge of Darkness. And so I had a great time. It has two really key elements in deck builders. It has a free economy. It puts the money into your into your deck immediately. At the beginning of your turn, you draw like the next money card, and it also has cards you buy go immediately into your hand. Those two key elements that the newer deck builders are slowly picking up on, it has them both, and it, and it just works for that game. And that's Xenoshift by Simon. Played Among Thieves. Talked about this a couple times. This was sent to us by a very generous listener. Among Thieves is an iterated Prisoner's Dilemma game. And two things that are coming more and more to the fore as far as Among Thieves is is concerned. One of the things I haven't mentioned before in my previous playings, one of the cool things about Among Thieves is when you get your party together, and that's a crucial element of it, you have to decide who you trust, who's going to bribe you, whether you can extract favors from people by by bringing them along, but then you have to decide which deck you're going to go try to quote-unquote blackmail in the universe of the game, because nominally you're a bunch of thieves blackmailing corporations. But there are four possible endgame conditions, and in each of the different endgame conditions, there's a different victory condition. And so you have to look at, now it's only based on two factors, how much money people have and where people are in the honor track. But based on those conditions, you start to look and say, okay, here's what will happen if this end game condition triggers. I don't want that to happen. I can't allow that deck to be milled anymore. And that really adds a level of nuance and a level of preparedness that you don't often get in games of this depth or uh, length. And that part was really pleasing and just teasing out the different possibilities. And then there's that extra level of based on that knowledge and based on what you expect other people will want the endgame condition will be, that in turn influences whether they're going to be trustworthy or untrustworthy on a given heist. That part's beautiful. It's wonderful. And people really like it. And it's one of those iterated prisoner's dilemma games where people immediately understand a properly calibrated incentive to be vicious and and turn on people. You don't see games where everyone's too nice and you don't see games that go off the rails because everyone's betraying all the time. So they got the parameters really, really well. And then there's the event deck, which is still nonsense. I hate the event deck in Among Thieves. It's core to the game and... I would venture to say a solid third of the events are ridiculous, another third are unsatisfying, and only about the last third are anything that I would remotely want to call reasonable. Like, for example, sometimes the event is something like players in turn order have the option of, you know, buying honor for some of my money. Fine. Okay. Cool. And at the other extreme, you have things like everybody who is on the heist, and remember the way you win in the game is by being on heist. Everyone on the heist loses a catastrophic amount of money and everyone suffers. Or everyone not on the heist gets a fabulous amount of money. These are things you can't plan for. These are things you can't control for. And they're just there to inject some kind of quote-unquote balance into the game. I've tried to call the deck. I didn't do a very good job. I'm going to try again and see if the game works, but there's only a certain number of events that I'm willing, that you can turn over that doesn't cause the table to go, uh, all right, this is happening now. 
And we're not talking about hardcore strategy gamers that only want to play Vital Asserta or whatever. These are people that are, you know, they accept the fact that they're playing, you know, an eight-player game where everyone's a thief trying to blackmail corporations. But when the card turns over and I was like, this is kind of nonsense, it saps a lot of the joy out of the table. So I'm going to try to... (laughs) I'm going to sit down with that deck of event cards and try once again to get it down to a position where I don't think they're super nonsensical. And if I can, maybe then I think uh, Among Thieves is going to have a lot more legs. As it is, Among Thieves is kind of clever, but the event cards sap a lot of it out of it and make it frustrating. So I don't know. I haven't really settled on, on where that balance yet sits, but more to follow on Among Thieves. We also got Baron Park back to the table again. Finally, for the, my last game, Baron Park. I, I'm still enjoying it. I, I can see where if you play it a lot, it can get a little too gamey. Like you're really, you know, pre-planning out your whole, your map and you're, you need to start seeing what green pieces the other players are taking because you got to make sure that you don't leave yourself with too many single spots to fill up and all the singles are gone or stuff like that. And how crucial those, the achievements, how crucial the achievements really are to making the game that much better. Because without the achievements, I think it's quite dull. Quite dull, I think, is unfair. I I find Baron Park aggressively charming because it's strange because normally talking about, you know, the normal things that deck builders can exploit in terms of, of getting a baseline level of enjoyment. Normally, your baseline level of enjoyment from a tile laying game is the fact that it tends to be very, very player interactive because usually you're laying tiles collectively with everyone else to build the map. Baron Park, you're not doing that. So the area of competition in Baron Park is actually... To me, it's not even so much a game about tile placement. It's a game about tile management. It's about managing your supply of tiles. Because every tile you place informs what tiles you're going to get in the future. And you always want to make sure that you're not over-committing or under-committing. You want to be able to get a constant stream of points out. And the achievements add a lovely little layer of nuance to that. Uh, an element of, well, this other tile is worth more points, but this other person's competing with me with pandas, and I'll be damned if if they're going to outmaneuver me on pandas. I'm the panda king. I invented pandas. Pandas are what I do. Because pandas are cool. So I need to take some more pandas now, and I'm going to be a turn... Anyway, and but that, to me, doesn't really... And then I don't mean this as a criticism. I don't think it introduces a new element to the game. I think it just heightens that tile supply element that was already there. Now, sometimes it's not just as simple as, as tile supply. There's geometric configurations that the achievements reward and other things like that. Those ones I mostly ignore because I'm very, very bad at spatial puzzles. Now, I should, I should stress that up front. I approach the game in this way largely because I'm bad at spatial puzzles. I, I look at a hole and I figure, well, can I fill that with one tile? Uh, I don't know. No? Okay, whatever. And then I flail out of helplessly. But in terms of managing tile supply, that I can understand. And it's cute. Would I want to play it every day? Probably not. But in terms of rules density and in terms of quality of decisions, that it's got a very, very excellent ratio of low rules overhead and high quality decision making. The amount of forward planning involved in it as a tile layer is really high, because that's one of the criticisms of a lot of your lighter tile laying games, your Carcassonne, your Quadropolis, things like that. You don't really have an opportunity to plan ahead or make long-term strategic decisions. In Baron Park, though, your decision horizon can be as, as far as you want it to be. If you want to figure it out, you know, look at the look 10 turns ahead and figure out what you're going to do, the game will let you do that. If you don't, because you're like me and you're not smart enough to do that, you can also play it on that level. And you get to build a cute bear park. And so if at the end of the day, your opponent who, who's got who's some sort of uh, savant, who's got 112 bear points and you've got 52 bear points, whatever, you've built your bear park. So I think it gets by a lot on charm and lightness of rules, but I'm very glad you introduced me to Baron Park, and my early experiences with it have been extremely positive, and I think uh, I, th- I think you're being a little harsh. Tough. You need to be a bear in your park. A little tougher bear. Allow me to paraphrase the Speaker of the House of the English House of Commons. Order! Order! Very rude, Walker. Anyway... Finally, I played another game of Pax Renaissance, and just as an indication of the kinds of things that can happen in Pax Renaissance, I'd like to admit that I have a problem. I'm addicted to one card that sometimes shows up, and that is the card known as The Handsome. And that card is Radu of Dracul, Vlad's younger brother, who uh, tried to conspire with the Ottomans to turn, well, what is represented in the game as Hungary, but which in point of fact represents a lot of Baltic and Eastern European kingdoms. Uh, So... 
I, in the past two games that I've played, Hungary has become a caliphate by virtue of Radu's influence, but he's just so dreamy, Walker. He hits that table. I see that card that says the handsome. I look at those two Muslim knights that he brings with him. It, it doesn't lie, Mark. It really doesn't lie. It's true. He is dreamy. And in my defense, every time the handsome comes up, every time I, I start saying, it's like, okay, if the handsome comes up, I'm not going to buy him. But then he comes up and it's perfect. Hungary's ripe for the taking. <laughs> <laughs> Hungary wants to become a caliphate. I'm already invested in Islamic prestige, and uh, there we go. So, I guess I'm just announcing this to anyone who would play against me in Pax Renaissance. I'm I am vulnerable to the handsome gambit. Just you know, <laughs> put out some of that catfishing there, and I'm so thirsty for 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 Radu of Dracul that uh, I actually knew a guy named Radu. He was also very very physically attractive. There you go. And you played a two player. I did play a two player. <laughs> and how did that work? Out? Oh, uh, Pax Renaissance is wonderful two-player. If anything, I think that's probably the best configuration. Get two players who know the rules. And my opponent still remembered the, the core elements of the rules. Just needed a couple bits of, okay, so X, Y, and Z will happen when this happens, right? I'm like, yeah. And it was great. And all four victory conditions were in contention. We were in a position where we were all jockeying for all of them. And it was just a question of which way things were going to break. And uh, things uh, didn't break out in my favor. But I can't blame that on Radu because he just looks at me with those, those deep, deep eyes. Those dreamy eyes. Oh, yeah. And you melt. You melt. So I played I Heart Radu. Pax Renaissance. Is that your last one? How could, how could anything follow how Radu? Could, how, cool? how can we... Yeah. There's no, no one, no one wants to come. No one wants to second up him yet. Absolutely. So, those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I downloaded this app called Dizzed. It's D I Z E D. I just wanted to check it out. It's a board game app. It teaches you how to play the game, and I thought it was pretty interesting for those for those board game groups who don't play a lot of games who maybe don't have a person that can teach very well. This this app brings you through the whole thing like even opening up the box the first time it asks you at the beginning is this the first time you're opening a box yes then it tells you how to take out the pieces how to sort them how to set it up it'll take you through like a simplified first turn and then in in like introduce more and more rules as you go along in the game and it'll bring you it'll bring you right up to speed on how to play and i thought it was a great idea simon's on board another a couple other big companies are on board and hopefully they'll get a lot more uh, a lot more games in there and get a lot more people playing and that's ditzed. I thought it was pronounced dized. Dizzed. Dized. No, why are we talking about pronunciation? Anyway. Dizedi. So, Swag Favorite Comet is undergoing mild revisions. The publishers say there's going to be a Comet 1.5. They say they're working through the rules and working through the Divine Intervention cards and working through the tiles. I have read the draft rulebook for 1.5. It's only available in French. This was pointed out to us by a loyal listener who correctly internalized that this was surely a job for uh, people in Canada with a French background. And so I can say that there are a number of minor rule changes, subtle differences here and there that seem for the good. I never had a huge problem with the way turn order worked in Comet, but I did recognize it was a problem. And they've kind of nudged things in that direction. They've made a couple of changes to battle, but minor things. I'm very curious if they're going to make more changes to the... The power tiles. They have, however, made one excellent change. No longer are they white, red, and blue power tiles. They are diamond, ruby, and sapphire tiles. There we go. They are learning, and it also makes me think that this, with a very little bit of work, could be a Steven Universe board game. Just need to, you know... Tweak it up a little bit. Tweak it up a little bit. You'd have diamond, ruby, and sapphire. Three excellent... Well, you'd have to figure out which diamond you wanted, but presumably white diamond in this case. So there you go. Did they hint around how this is going to be rolled out? Is it just a book that you can... My understanding is, although they haven't committed to anything, that this is purely going to be a documentation upgrade, and that no components are going to be changed. I can certainly say that in terms of the rules, there don't seem to be any component changes whatsoever. I'd be very surprised if they're going to change anything in the way the tiles work so that you need new tiles or new cards. Now, that I, mean, I it's all very much up in the air. This is an ongoing process, and I just, as I say, I've only looked at a draft rule book, but it looks like the kind of thing that you could easily port into an existing copy. All right, so Terra Mystica by Z-Man Games is going to get another expansion called Merchants of the Sea. I bring this only up, I only bring this up because I want to say stop. Okay, enough. <laughs> okay, there's a much superior game out there called The Gaia Project that really should get an expansion because it is a far better game and they need an expansion for that game. So Terra Mystica, stop. Down, down, down. Guy Project, yes. Up, up, up. Okay, 
That's that's all I have to say. There is one thing though that Terra Mystica has that Gaia Project does not, and that is a rabid fan base that has been playing the crap out of it for the ten years since it was released, and that has to be why they're still releasing an expansion for it. Yes. Yeah, so that being said, it looks very interesting. It's going to add ports and boats and harbors and all sorts of new stuff that you can do to Terra Mystica. Why you would want to, I don't know. When there's a superior <laughs> game out there called Gaia Project. So I'm doing my hand gestures now, so that's not going to be picked up. And, and, and There you go. Wrapping your hands around my throat is not a hand gesture, Walker. There's going to be an expansion to Vengeance. Um, game that we hear quite like its swag. It's got a lot of charm and a very, very good thematic integration of a sort of revenge movie simulator. Gordon K.A. has uh, Vengeance is going to have an expansion called Director's Cut. There's going to be a Kickstarter in late October. They're going to have all the original stuff available again, which is nice because they haven't reprinted any of the materials from the original run. So so anybody who wants any of the expansion stuff is pretty much out of luck. It hasn't hit retail. And the goal, in part, is to introduce more player interaction. Now, the problem that, that we expressed at the time when we talked about Vengeance at the time is not only is there not really much player interaction, but thematically it's hard to understand how player interaction could really work. And I have to say that the conceit sounds pretty clever because every player is playing their own revenge movie, basically. And typically speaking in those contexts, multiple people seeking revenge don't get in each other's way so as to get better revenge. It's like, I don't want you to get revenge on gang A that I have nothing to do with because I want revenge on gang B. Like that's Vengeance is not a fungible resource. It doesn't exhaust when one person gets it. it. That's not how things work. But anyway, but they've decided to leverage the conceit of the game, which is it's already mirrors the structure of a movie. You have the montage phase. You have a variety of scenes that are set up to be to, to, to mirror that of a movie. And so the director's cut expansion is going to leverage that. So when you as a player are interfering with someone else's quest for vengeance, you're not doing it as the vengeful character. You're doing it as kind of the director of the movie to spice up the scene. It's like, okay, there are going to be more thugs here now, or the thugs are going to do the special move. I think it's cute. It's a way to maintain enough of the thematic integration, because as we said, that's the primary strength of the game. Vengeance is so well executed on a thematic and visual level that anything that really breaks with that is really going to threaten to undermine the core experience. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what what's is going to be happening with the Vengeance game. And uh, you, had, you had remarked that you wanted to uh, play it again, so we should probably get it to the table sometime soon. And that is Vengeance Director's Cut. Look for it in late October. That sounds awesome. There is trick-taking games out there, Mark. And the Are thing, there? And the thing with trick-taking games is... I thought they is, all got took. They, only, they did get took. The thing about getting them getting took is they can only, usually can only took them with four players. It's very hard to took them with only two. Now, there's a game called Fox in the Forest, and they did a great job. There's going to be another Fox in the Forest game called Fox in the Forest Duet. And what it's going to do is make it a cooperative trick-taking game. Fascinating. Exactly. It sounds really interesting because Fox in the Forest was a great. They really did a great job on making a two-player trick-taking game. Making a co-op on top of that, I think it's going to be very interesting to play. I'm looking forward to it. And that's by Renegade Game Studios. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. So on to our feature game. Our feature game this week is going to be Black Angel. Black Angel was put out by Sébastien Dujardin, Xavier Georges, and Alain Orban of Pearl Games of this year. This is the same trio that did the game Trois, which is spelled uh, T-R-O-Y-E-S for people uh, who can't understand what I'm saying, which probably includes most people. Uh, Javier Georges also released Carson City, the Western worker placement game, and Ginkopolis, which is one of the uh, tiling, drafting, tableau building games that I quite enjoy, despite the fact that normally those combinations don't do anything to me, but it's a very cute game. Perennially asked for a reprint, but Pearl Games says they're not going to do it. And Sébastien Dujardin put out Deus, which was also a kind of a sort of a tableau builder, and Selenia, which is a more recent game that they've been uh, pushing from Pearl Games. We have not tried Selenia, so we have nothing to say about that. Now, given that Black Angel is a dice-drafting Eurogame, more on that later when Walker gives us an unhelpful summary, most people have immediately made the connection between that and Trois, not only because of the fact that it's the same three designers, but because one of the core mechanisms looks very similar. As a prelude, I'm not going to be spending a whole lot of time comparing Black Angel to Trois because I don't actually think they're all that similar. I can't speak for Walker, but that's where I'm coming from. 
I will make comparisons where appropriate, but you're not going to hear a whole heck of a lot of that, because having played both, I do not think that the comparison is very apt. Except, of course, in the context of design pedigree of what they've done before. So, with that in mind, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Black Angel? All right, and there are puzzle games out there, Mark. Games that you can figure out. You know, you have the best first move, or like Scythe, you can plan two or three moves ahead, you have all your different steps. Black Angel is not one of those games. The game state changes so much that none of that is possible. You have action cards dropping off or they're too full to use, tech dropping off or someone else took or someone else has taken them. Your dice are being used by other players, so it's impossible to plan ahead. It is more of a make sure you're ready to capitalize on an opportunity when it presents itself. It's more of that type of game. So let's start with the dice drafting, because it's it's one of the fundamental action selection mechanisms of the game, and you and I are very weak to clever action selection mechanisms and in the past couple of weeks i've been raving about pulsar 2849 because i think it's uh, dice drafting is, is is one of the best ever the way that it works is you're entitled to some number of dice you roll them and you might be able to lock one which is super important because in a very real way and this is what's weird about black angel and one of the many reasons why after the first couple of plays i still couldn't make heads or tails of the game you don't really want to roll high because if you roll high someone else is going to steal your dice You want to roll low because no one's going to steal a low die, and you can boost your own dice, but you can't boost other people's dice. The last thing in the world you want to do is have to use a die, and all you've got are opponents' low dice, because there's nothing you can do with that whatsoever. As a result, you can expect that your good dice rolls are going to get poached out from under you. Which, I'm not too sure how I feel about that. On the one hand, it's good because it doesn't lead to the dominant strategy just being get as many dice as possible. Because very often, in whether it's worker placement games or drafting games like this, you just build up a huge worker advantage and then you, you monopolize it. Or you roll a lot luckier than everybody else every time type thing. Exactly. Or the, the consequence of your roll. But what it does, though, is it still leads you into a situation where the value of your roll matters. It's just a little counterintuitive. You still want to roll a particular set of results but it's not necessarily intuitively obvious what those results are. And so while on on the the, the surface, I like the whole issue of, you know, being able to buy everyone else's dice, I didn't really feel like it was super substantive in terms of player interaction. I just felt it was just sort of a thing that emerged from the chaos of the game state. How did you feel about the dice drafting? No, I I have that down here. It's, It's cool because you can increase the number of dice you're going to get. They're not D6s. They're only like zero to three. The fact that you can only improve your dice, you already said all of this, but the fact that you want to roll low, I I like the whole thing pretty well. Except for the fact that, you said, like we said, we cannot plan ahead, so you have no idea what dice are going to be left when it's your turn. And like you said, there could only be the, maybe even zeros left on the thing, so you can do nothing, so your turn is completely wasted. Yeah, honestly, I have to say, and this, it's not super central to the game. At the end of the day, the, the, the dice selection is not tremendously consequential. But when compared to other games like Pulsar, Voyages of Marco Polo, or even Coimbra, I even prefer the dice drafting in Coimbra because you could just look at the display and figure out, okay, well, this I need, this I also need, this the other person's going to take. You know, it felt like more like drafting. Whereas in Black Angel, partially by virtue of how the game state changes, partially just of how how the, the dice themselves work, you don't really have that sense of planning ahead. It was just slightly less satisfying than I would have liked it to be, but but it served its purpose just fine, I think. Yes, yeah, so what I have down here is that you have to, to get victory points or to, to be able to plan ahead or to be able to get forward in this game, you have to have a ready supply of stuff. You have to have lots of crystals. You have to have lots of ships. You have to have damage tokens ready. You have to have make sure you have enough robots ready. You have to have a good hand of mission cards because you might have to throw those away. You have to have a bunch of techs because that might be something else you might have to get rid of. And a whole bunch of Ravager cards, which are the aliens that are attacking your ship. It's funny that we say attacking your ship because we haven't talked about the theme of this game. Why haven't we talked about the theme of this game? Because there is no theme in this game. <laughs> I I know that I personally am very disappointed at how the theme has failed to materialize. Because there's a lot of fertile material here in the theming of the game that I feel was just not capitalized on. Why don't you give us a rundown on what the theme is? Oh, you have this giant ship. All of humanity, I guess, is destroyed. We have like the genomes or the DNA or the footprint or, you know, what is left of humanity is on this ship. And it 
they didn't want to leave it just to one nation or one, you know, they said, oh, no, we can't leave it in the hands of just one. We're going to have it. I can't even say this. It's painful even to say this description. So they have a whole bunch of AI. I'll take over. They have a whole bunch of AIs that are running the ship, and you have to get the ship to the eventual Eden world that you're then going to reawake humanity and and, and repopulate the ship. But but, but we got to say, it's it's almost as bad as Edge of Darkness, right? The guilds can't work together. No, these nations (laughs) can't work together. So so each nation has their own sense own set of, of robots or AI well, on the it's not ship. E- it's not even nation. Because that's, that's the first thing that I wish they'd done with the theme. Because I was thinking, I don't know why I was thinking specifically in comparison to this game, but in Anachrony, there's not a whole lot of thematic integration with what's going on. And I, I faulted the game for that. You know, the time travel didn't really feel that. But the different factions were graphically and thematically distinct. And they wrote up a little bit of fluff about the different orientation and the different worldviews of the different factions. And the, the, the notional conceit here in Black Angel is whichever AI group does best will then have the honor of waking up humanity. And my thought was, so? Who cares? Who cares if it's the pink aliens, uh, the, the, the pink AI or the white AI that wakes up humanity. If they had done a little bit of fleshing out, now this could have been done partially through components and making them look a little bit different, or a little bit in the rulebook or on the player aids or whatever, about how these different AI were programmed in different ways and the different thoughts about how humanity ought to live, that would have given a little bit of texture and I think really would have would have amplified the experience. Agreed. Similarly, you make contact with three different alien races, and then there are the Ravagers that are attacking your ship, all of which I'm a sucker for sci-fi. Right. And, you know, I was really excited about Black Angel partially on a thematic basis, but none of that really bleeds through. Basically, what happens is you just play these cards to various spaces, and that represents making contact with various alien races. And the Ravagers, it's this weird sort of hindrance. The ship is immortal and invulnerable. There's no sense in which the Ravagers can kill you. The Ravagers can kill you. So they're toothless as a threat. They're just annoyances. They just make various action spaces more expensive. And they're a semi-random way to introduce other resources, namely Ravager cards, which you do for something else. You you use Ravager cards. You you go and you kill Ravagers and protect the ship. And what that does is it allows you to play cards to activate technologies you have in your grid. What? Like, is this the carapace that you're then, like, you've invented this technology on the ship, and it, it, it creates new ships for you, but it's only activated by shoving in the, the theropod of, like, I, I, it makes no sense to me. Maybe their, maybe their blood's very, uh, combustible, and it, oh. and it fuels the, the, you know, I'll stop now. See, you've provided more texture and flavor than, than the, the game has. There you go. And, and the, you're talking about how the ship, you know, how they're, and I was just gonna say, it just and it just keeps plodding along forward, one space every turn. You can't really; it doesn't deviate from the path. It just makes sense that it's on its way to the planet. Why would it deviate? But it just it just doesn't seem like it's, you know, traversing this great space because it's just sort of like moving one space each time. Well, here, here's where I will come to the defense of Black Angel because again, all of these issues about theme, it's no more themeless than most other Euros we play, right? It's just that it comes close to being, I think, very narratively compelling. And then it fails to take advantage of all these things that it's set up. So that's just more of a frustration. Well, that's what I mean. That's, it, it, it just hits the two things that I hate most about. But why when we there was a discussion going on about bad board games, and this hits both of them, right? Uh, disappointing, like because it has it. It you know you think it's going to be this great thing, and it leads to disappointment, and it it tries to sell a theme that doesn't even come close to to manifesting itself. On a somewhat related topic, though, I will say these these things in, in defense of Black Angel, because although we've just spent the entire time complaining, and I, I have some more quibbles, and I do have some good points, I would just like to say, just to sum up now, I think Black Angel is fine. Yeah. It's it's and, okay. And I also, also I had great fun playing every time we played it. I, I want to make sure, say the same thing. There's going to yeah. be a lot of negative things we say, yeah. but I, yes. The the aspect of so somewhat related to, to to the thematic aspect. When I first saw screenshots of the components of Black Angel, I thought it looked garish, like straight up garish. There's a lot of pink, there's a lot of bright oranges and and, and similar tones. I have to say that on the table, the artwork is done by Eno Tool, and it looks very distinct and very visually arresting in a good way. It looks different from all the other Euros. You don't have washed out sepia tones. The it is very pink. There's a lot of bright pinks and and stuff like that. But it does look cool. It looks plausibly like some sort of dayglow vision of space where you're going to be traversing strange areas. And I thought that visually speaking, and in terms of the quality of the components, it did a very 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 good job of setting the stage in a way that a lot of the other thematic elements didn't. 
you talked earlier about it being a dice drafting game. Now, why do you call it a dice drafting game over a dice worker placement game? Is it because you're going to lose most of your dice? You really don't have a choice of which dice you're mostly taking other people's dice? or Well, I, I don't consider it really to have the elements of worker placement because, to my mind, again, we're getting here into taxonomy, which okay. doesn't necessarily have a, you know, I'm not married to these taxonomies. But to my mind, worker placement is about denying a place to somebody else. You know, I've taken this action space. You can't activate it now until there's some sort of reset. In the context of a dice drafting game, there's this pool of dice that you can select from, and the actions that they power are not limited. It's the dice that power them that are limited. That, that, that's primarily where I'm coming from. And the actions that you use to do with the dice, let's, let's start talking about that. There are, fundamentally speaking, about five different things you can do with dice. And they're not limited in any way. And in point of fact, the board itself is largely unnecessary. The board is just a large action selection space where the location of the dice, we often forgot to finally shove them back into the supply because, again, where they are doesn't really matter a whole heck of a lot. Or most of we just put them. them in the supply. We never put them on the actual action space. We just dump them into the supply right. and say we're taking this action. Right. And some of them relate to keeping the ship in working order. They give you resources. But most of the time what you're going to be doing is placing out these mission cards and activating these mission cards. That, 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 I think, is the core of the game. And this is one of the things, again, one of the other reasons why Black Angel took me a while to internalize in any way. And also one of the things that I think is very much to its strength. Because as much as I complain about Black Angel in the context of, you know, modern Euro designs, it's not a point salad game. And it's not your sort of uh, compound interest engine builder game. Because Black Angel gives you uh, a decision space and says, there is no default way to earn points. You have to make your own engine. You have to make your own way in the world. And even then, in the context of doing so, it's very opportunistic. And I often like that in the context of Euro games. In other words, the engine that you're pumping in turn two ain't going to be there in round five. Literally, in this case, because the ship has moved on. The planet that you are activating to do that thing is gone. We, the ship has moved past it, and no one can do it anymore. And that part took me a long time to understand. I kept thinking, okay, well, if I play out this card and activate it twice, then I can play out this card and I can activate it once, and then I can play out this card and then I can activate it three times, and then I'm going to have lots of points. No, no, no. That's not how you play Black Angel. Those cards are going to be done, and by the time you set up your second card, the game's over. Because... <laughs> It, the, the game state is more dynamic than that, and it's also worth noting, we'll probably circle back to this later, the game is shockingly short in terms of the number of rounds you're going to play. Agreed. Other good points. The robots are adorable. So adorable? So adorable. you got these little mini robots, and they, they're going to shoot out on these little spaceships, and they're going to zoom along to the different planets and make them your planets and give you victory points or some other resource when you claim it, and they're going to allow you to... When you, when you claim a planet and someone else pumps it for victory points, you get an opportunity to do it once. I wish that had been more prevalent. The problem is, and I've been thinking about this, most of the time, when you spend an action to move a ship, moving it just so you can take advantage of somebody else's action space, the opportunity cost of doing that is you're not putting out your own card, and you're foregoing all the advantages and all the benefits of doing that. And so it feels very much like a wasted turn, in my experience, to just move a ship over so you can capitalize on somebody else's action. Because first you spend the die to move the ship most of the time, and then you later on in a subsequent turn, assuming that that die is there, spend the die to actually activate the card, and then the owner gets some benefit. If there were more of that, I'd be a huge fan. It was it was Soul I was trying to compare it to. Because much like Soul, Soul's buildings, right? If, if someone activates the building, then you get to do it a minor part. So that it's is, a little bit like that. That is Actually, that's the thing. I, I as well thought... There is a very strong comparison between Black Angel and Saul Last Days of a Star. They're very, very different games in lots of ways, but they are spatially oriented efficiency games where there's a notion of co-opetition and parasite being parasitic off of other people's buildings. Now, this is kind of getting ahead to, to, to some more of my frustrations, but the difference is that in Saul Last Days of a Star, there's far more interaction in terms of using other people's buildings because of just the way the game works and it's less of an opportunity cost. And also I felt that the spatial element of having to worry about where the buildings are and where your ships are is much more straightforward and much more compelling in Saw Last Days of a Star than it was in Black Angel. Because as I said, moving your ships in Black Angel is a, is it's not a laborious process. It's not complicated, but it's something you have to spend to do. And one of the things that we praised about Saw Last Days of a Star is it got a lot of leverage just from the fact that your mothership just moves automatically. Whereas here in Black Angel, you got to work to do it. And you have to because otherwise your ships are going to get left behind. 
because the Black Angel is the thing that moves inexorably forward, not your actual player pieces. And that difference, I think, made a lot of difference. It's true. There is one thing you can get in Black Angel that you can slowly accumulate and plan for. There's these end-of-game tech tiles that show up, and you can buy them and sort of get some sort of a strategy going. Yeah, the the technology tiles are, again, an entirely themeless sort of spatial puzzle way to get little bennies. Now, that having been said, this is sort of a a good news, bad news situation in terms of how accessible the game is from a learning perspective, not necessarily in terms of playing well, but just in terms of learning it. I was very pleasantly surprised and pleasantly disappointed primarily about, and unpleasantly disappointed rather, about elements of the technology tiles. The things I was pleasantly surprised about was there's a lot of iconography like any other modern Euro game, but I was very surprised at how little new players needed to look at the reference sheet. I would explain a very small amount of things, and then people would immediately know what all the cards, all the tech tiles did. So there's a lot of icons, but people get it very quickly because it's it, it's a relatively small economy. There's only about four different kinds of goods, basically, roughly speaking. And I was disappointed, however, by how uh, uh, difficult players seemed to find the turn structure of using technologies. Because, you know, there are player aids, and they walk you through it, but people seemed to have some degree of difficulty internalizing that Activating technologies is optional, but you have to do it before you do your main turn, and then this other thing happens. And so it, it, it added to the incomprehensibility of your first play, because generally speaking, myself included, people's first play of Black Angels is a wash. They don't have a sense of how long the game is going to last. They don't really have a good sense of how to make any points at all. And it's just very, very intimidating, which is weird because, you know, as, as we said, there's only a small number of actions, a small number of different resources, and fundamentally the game is relatively straightforward. Just there's a bit of a learning curve. Yeah, I agree with the points about forgetting to do it because, you know, you've done your main action, you can see your downward resources, and then you're like, oh, I should have got the resources first, blah, blah, blah. But I do like, I'm going to talk about this tech mechanism because you're going to get these techs on the side and you slide them in on this like little circuit board and at the beginning of your turn you can you pay play down there's all these different color cards and you play it down a line and all the techs of that color will activate and they give you little bennies and i just sort of like how you can sort of build up an engine on your little board like oh, i'm going to line up three yellows that way when i put down a yellow card they're all going to go and you can use like you said the ravager cards you can feed the fuel in because red will activate any line regardless of the colors and and I, I'm wondering with multiple plays whether you can create a, a victory point engine just on that board alone would be interesting to try. Not so much with the victory points because the, the most you ever get is there are some techs that give you one victory point every time they're activated. The, the real source of points is in the cards. And I... You know, the, the technology element was fine, but really I felt, I, I wish that the game had played a little bit more to its strengths, which was, to me, this notion of traveling through space and these mission cards that you play out, which are only present for a certain amount of time because the, the, the ship is going to keep going and leave things behind. And ultimately, the way the mission cards worked, I, I, I liked, again, I liked the fact that it was sort of build your own engine you know, there are all these opportunities. But at the same time, I was a little bit frustrated because the, the, the core of the game when, when played focused on that is these mission cards. And there are two major shortcomings. Number one, you draw mission cards randomly. So maybe you'll get a card that gives you the resource you need. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll get a really useful conversion engine going. Maybe you'll get these two cards that work perfectly together and you can plop them out in different areas of the board and everything's happy. Maybe you won't. But to a certain extent, I'm willing to deal with that because dealing with the the, the vicissitudes of, of random cards in that sense is something I'm okay with. But the other problem that I had was, given how central it is to the game, it's strange that they come in at a fixed rate. And there was nothing you could do to accelerate that. You couldn't pay any opportunity costs to try to draw more or get more or look at more or go through more. It's very simple. At the end of your turn, when you use a yellow die, draw two yellow cards, keep one. Did you use a green die? Draw two green cards, keep one. That's it. And... Given, again, given how central it is to crafting an overall strategy, it's weird that there's no way to get more and there's no way to make it less random. You had a couple of suggestions on that score, though. Yeah, it was, I just, I just thought, because it's in my bad points about this at the end of your turn, drawing these cards and having to reshuffle the cards and cycling through these cards so many times. But I was just wondering if it was easier if you just draft them, have like a pool of three out and at the end of your turn, you know, you play it, if whatever die you use, you get to draft one of those cards. I think it just would make the game much quicker and it would give you something to work towards because you could see the the cards that were up there and you'd say okay i'm going to do yellow because i really want to use that card and you could actually start doing strategies it'd be interesting to try it that way 
I, you know, I, I understand why they didn't because they didn't want to necessarily add to AP or things like that. But I agree that it would have been nice to have that extra little bit of control. All right. One more. I have one last good point, And that is that the end of game scoring was not that excessive and you could totally predict it, right? You, like I already talked about, there was these end of game tiles. You could see when the person drafted it and they had it and you can see that they're building towards it so you can sort of sort of work out how many points they're going to get for it and then there's not this you know f- you know 200 300 points at the end you sort of knew where you stood throughout the whole game anytime there's a modern euro game especially a modern efficiency based or resource based euro game that doesn't need a score pad i'm happy because it indicates that there's a certain amount of cleanliness and focus and you're absolutely right at the end of the game in black angel it's very simple you get half a point for all your stuff and if that and condition applies and you activate your advanced technologies and the thing about the advanced technologies is they're they're just end game scoring you don't have to go for them there's a certain balance you have to put in a lot of effort to make sure that those advanced technologies pay off and if you don't want to go through that effort, if you don't want to commit to that, instead you can focus on the other elements, namely pumping the different action cards for conversion points. Or you can try to do a bit of both. That amount of latitude I felt very, very satisfying. It gave you a certain amount of freedom, and it kind of helped to offset this notion of the fact that the advanced technologies and the mission cards are all random. You can try to figure out, it's like, uh, okay, well, this display is working out for me better than the other one, so let's just focus on that for now and see what happens. Yeah, I really, I really liked that element. It was, again, a lot of elements of Black Angel despite its level of complexity and despite a relatively intimidating rules explanation, you're talking about a solid 20 minutes where a lot of people are going to be like, "Eh, I don't know. It is pretty clean and it's relatively straightforward and it moves at a decent clip and it's going to be over pretty quickly. So that, and those are non-trivial advantages, especially in a modern Euro game space. Well, now that you say that, I'm going to use that to segue into my bad points. You got it. Because I think there are a lot of things that, that don't make it very, one of my good points was that there was flow. You do your one die, you move on. There's a lot of fiddly things in this game that will trip up new players because let's go with the first thing. There's these damage cues. You you use a die and you 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 fix the ship and now these damage cubes they go onto your board and you place them on your text and you get a Benny and then and then they slide up to this other area and then you can use them for something else kind of weird. And then when you have to reset you actually have to, you know, you take the front board and you move it to the back and you got to move the whole space along that's another for the and then the black angel you got to make sure you move it forward one and then whenever you put down a planet you got to remember to add text to the thing and they have to slide off and you move them down and then at the end of your turn you got to draw two cards pick one and then there's the cards dropping off the back like when the black angel moves you know the the ships drop off and you got to you know take the mission cards that you put out there and they got to come back to your action board and you got to pass all the player components back around. So there's a lot of this stuff all moving all over the place. And it just seems like a lot of stuff going on in this game. That is true. Even after experienced players, we would forget very often one of those little details and we'd realize a couple turns later and it's not a huge deal, but you're right. There's a certain amount of upkeep and, and, and managing about. And that sort of leads into the same thing where it, this, we say this a lot rewards veteran players, right? And we talk about this, and it's, of course, if you've played, you have, before you have an advantage. But when we say this, I think in particular games, it is a distinct advantage to people who have played before. Like in this game, they know the victory cards that are coming up. They know what, what end game victory tiles might come up. They know how exactly how this game works, how much it's different than other games, how long it's going to last. I think there are huge advantages to people who have played before. It's primarily for me the pacing. That was the biggest thing I needed to internalize. Knowing how long an engine was apt to last, which is to say not very long, which in turn influences the value of the two different cards. We alluded to this. They're the cards that help you build an engine, and then they're the cards that just trigger once. And it's impossible to know the relative value of those two things unless you have a good sense of how long the game is going to last, which is to say shorter than you think. And there are a lot of games, I, I should just note, there are a lot of Euro games like this that I absolutely adore, in part because they're so tight. But there, at least, you're able to give a little bit more hard and fast inputs about how long they're going to last. Like, when I explain how to play a game of Senji, I explain all the rules, and then I say, by the way, guys, this is going to last four to six game years. Probably not longer than that. Same thing with Tribune. If I sit down to Tribune and premise into Paris, it's like, okay, guys, just so you know, this is going to be a tight experience. We're probably going to last about five-ish rounds or so. And that often is enough to give people a sense of scope. But in Black Angel... 
I've tried saying, like, look, understand, this is the number of resets we're going to have, because it's a fixed number. It's not variable. It's just a fixed number of resets before the, the ship reaches the planet and the game ends. But even then, people are looking at the sea of cards and not able to internalize the relative value of things. So it can get very tricky, and in that sense, yes, you need a couple of games to figure out how any of this is going to work. Yeah, and and it's not it's not by accident that we're not explaining how to play this game. Of course. I think it'd be impossible just to do it with audio alone without like show without being able to like show you parts of the game and yeah the, and rule, the rules explanation is pretty daunting i do not think it'd be in any way possible to tell you how this game works with with you being able to understand it anyway so at the end of the day i i enjoy black angel it was nice enough i think it's fine but the problem is I don't think that any of the unique elements really shine to make it stand out in uh, you know, a crowded field of Euros. If you're telling me that I want to manipulate dice, I'd rather play Pulsar or Voyages of Marco Polo. If I'm going to do something in space, I would rather have something that captures that feel of being out in space. I think even Gaia Project, I think. I'm not a huge fan of Gaia Project, but even Gaia Project, I think, leverages the sense of expanding out in space a little bit better. And in terms of a lot of structural similarities. It really is surprising to me how similar it is to Saul Last Days of a Star because of how it tries to exploit this co-opetition and how it tries to exploit the spatial element. And again, my my chief knock against Saul Last Days of a Star was that I felt that there was this horizon where I was discovering it and once I'd gotten it down, it started to feel a little bit rote. Well, I got there too with Black Angel and I got there faster, right? I try to figure out what resource I have an abundance of. I try to find a resource conversion engine that 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 does that. I pump it a couple times. There you go. That's the game. That's pretty much what happens because not a whole heck of a lot happens over a course of a game of Black Angel because of how brief it is, which normally would be an asset. But again, in this case, it doesn't really come forward. If the element of draft, uh, using other players' cards were done better, if the spatial element were exploited a little bit more interestingly, if the thematic elements were brought to the fore a little bit better, if the dice drafting were a little bit more engaging, any one or any set of combination of those things would make me much, much more enthusiastic about Black Angel than I am. So as it stands, I think that Black Angel is okay, but in a real sense, a frustrating set of wasted opportunities. True. There's one thing I'd like to talk about that we didn't just quickly. I know we were sort of wrapping up, but it has that that reset part that we didn't really talk about. Some games have it where you have to decide at a certain point where it's time to reset, where you're going to take your dice and roll it again. And I don't know if it does it well in in this particular game. There's lots of games where it it has this, you know, really unique feel where it's really, uh, you understand exactly when you need to know it. I think, I think it's too punishing in this game. I think when you have to take that whole turn off where all you're doing is rolling your dice and you're not doing anything else, I think that really puts you back. I think it, it takes away from the game. Well, I think one of the reasons why that is is because when you do a reset, as we've been calling it, it's called a sequence B in the game. Again, very thematic. You, you roll all your dice and then you don't get to use any of them until another full round of the game goes. And as we said, certain die rolls are just going to get poached. You give everyone at the table an opportunity to steal the die rolls that they want to steal. So really, you feel like you're feeding the rest of the table. Not only are you not doing anything, but it's an advantage to all the other players because now they have this whole new pool of dice that they get to play from. Yeah. So again, we've been grousing a lot. I think, speaking personally, it's mostly because I, I see that Black Angel has a lot of good things there, and I just wish they'd come to the fore a little bit more. So as it is, I you know, I I I... Even after feeling like I've kind of figured out where I am with the game, I don't hate it. It's just I don't think that it does anything truly special. And I'd rather play a lot of other games, either in the dice drafting set or in the engine building set. So Yeah, I would I would play Black Angel at any time, but I would never suggest to play Black Angel. And that is Black Angel by Pearl Games, by Sébastien Dujardin, Javier Georges, and Alain Arbin. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Just before we close off, I'd just like to emphasize we've been getting a lot of feedback on Twitter, in the Guild, and on Facebook about our recent announcement with respect to the format change. You'll notice we no longer talk about the summer schedule. That's because the summer schedule is dead. Long live the summer schedule. From now on, we will be alternating weeks. One week we'll do a feature game like we did now, and then on alternating weeks we'll be doing topics. Gone are the days where we'll do both, but the feedback we've been getting has been very, very supportive 
supportive. And personally, I've been sincerely overwhelmed by the appreciation we've been getting and people saying that, you know, whatever we need to do to keep things sustainable. And some people, again, this is not what motivated the change, but some people do genuinely seem to prefer this format. And so more power to them. Uh, this is not to say that if you dislike the, the format change that you shouldn't reach out and and tell us. We'd, we'd be happy to hear from you as well. But this is how we're going to be doing things for the foreseeable future. And again, thanks for all the support. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>